Welcome to Cybercrimeology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. My name is Michael, and this is the final episode in our series of cybercrime histories. Joining us again to round out the series is Dr. Mike Levy. Dr. Levy is Professor of Criminology at Cardiff University and a deserving recipient of the Outstanding Achievement Award for Criminology from the British Society of Criminology. This is the second part of our chat with Dr. Levy, so make sure you listen to the previous episode as well as you listen to this one. We continue as the internet hits its stride and we journeyed into the new millennium. If you look at the data on the amount of uh, compromise, and I speak of some of, the, some of, of my payment cards have been compromised in, say, British Airways, Marriott and other uh, uh, data um, breaches. If you look at the number of people and the number of people with different accounts that have been compromised, that's still far greater than any known exploitation. I mean, classic thing for me was there were some discs containing the financial details of every taxpayer in the UK um, went missing. It was sent from the outsourced, not in India, but in the northeast of England. Uh, it was sent from the revenue authorities uh, placed there to London, and, it, and they never arrived. Right. And people thought, my God, yeah, this could lead to, uh, you know, all these, um, yeah, every taxpayer, they've got people's data, they've got lots of personal information about them. One would have expected a huge increase in uh, payment card fraud, in false applications um, for credit in people's names, for all kinds of scams. I'm not privy to all the um, internal information, but to the best of my knowledge and belief, as President Nixon used to say, um, to the best of my knowledge and belief, um, there wasn't any such boom. Well, it's entirely possible either the worker had not actually ever copied that data or he lost it down the side of his sofa or it got put out with the trash, all kinds of explanations other than theft in the mail. But certainly, yeah, you could have regarded the dot-com bubble as a kind of cyber crime. I mean, it was using cyber as the as the excuse to uh, do all kinds of financial manipulations. Um, but it's not commonly regarded as cybercrime. Um, but certainly people did then begin to think, well, what could bad people do with computers in a much more sustained way? So you started to get conferences, uh, you know, more conferences on cybercrime. Uh, that's a surefire measure of um, 
uh, rent extraction by academics. Uh, but I don't think that the notion of uh, cyber criminality was particularly advanced, not rationally, by 9-11, uh, because, yeah, there isn't much evidence that cyber technologies were used. Uh, Al-Qaeda was certainly, or certainly bin Laden himself, and some of the other leadership were very uh, nervous of the you know, skills and abilities of the intelligence services to uh, intercept cyber messages. So the more sophisticated things were exchanging passwords, but leaving messages that were never sent on bulletins, on Hotmail, on, you know, on other things that other people could, could get access to an unsent message so that you... Uh, reduced your risk of surveillance in that kind of way. Um, but people were, were very wary of using, um, yeah, if they were serious about uh, intelligence, um, they were very wary of using the phone um, or other uh, mechanisms in case the signals alerted people as to where you were. And, um, and so that limited the use of cyber in uh, terrorism. This is the time when, when uh, at least from what I see in, in, in what was going on at those conferences, there was some debate as to whether cybercrime was going to be any, any different in any kind of real or important way. Um, you had um, discussions about whether this was old wine and new bottles, and um, you... You yourself had a, an article which managed to keep academics away from um, similes involving alcohol, which was, is the web any different? So wh where were you leaning in, in at this time in terms of this kind of discussion and debate? The other thing I'd like to know is, what was the point of all of this debate? What was the, the motive for having such a discussion? What, what were people trying to get, get out of either it being something different or not being something different? Well, I think, in, I mean, there are two kinds of reasons. One is to understand the world better, which uh, I was already a tenured full professor in 1991. So, I mean, I didn't depend on this for my continued employment or, uh, or flow of articles. Uh, I think in part, people just like to latch on to something, either something new or something that appears to be new as something to write about. And if you're a social constructionist, uh, then you want to understand how uh, officials are constructing the threats differently and what they're deploying their resources to, irrespective of whether you think there is a reality out there, as I do and always have done. Uh, I mean, logically, of course, there is no reality beyond our construction of it or somebody's construction of it. But I think there's a reality beyond official constructions. Uh, so in my own case, I was interested in, well, what are the marginal effects of this? You know, just like nowadays during COVID, we talk about excess deaths, uh, i.e. the de more, more than the deaths that would have happened anyway. I was interested in excess frauds or indeed reduced frauds, because the question that you posed uh, um, could be said, well, you know, you might find 
uh, less it is entirely possible that there might be less fraud or different types of fraud. Um, my own view is that the the big fraud stuff happen, goes on anyway, and it's not particularly affected by cyber. Um, it's what the organized criminals or loose networks of individuals or or individuals acting on their own can do using um, cyber tools uh, that is uh, that is interesting. So we tend to freeze frame, as in the phrase, new wines in old bottles by um, Peter Grabowski and David Wall. Which one was it who first came up with that uh, phrase, a matter of debate? But I was also interested in developments in in security and how and how that was changed by 9-11 and David Wall and I wrote a, a piece um, about that, um, you know, exploring the changes in surveillance uh, uh, culture and what, what 9-11 meant for the world and things have advanced a great deal more uh, uh, since then. So there's a kind of general crime, general social surveillance issue, and there's a particular impact on financial crime issue. I'm not suggesting that anybody should be interested in either one or the other of those, perfectly possible to be interested in in both. Uh, and if you were a cyber specialist, which I'm not, then you might be, you know, you see the world through a, a cyber lens. Uh, if that's not too mixed a metaphor, uh, and that's perfectly uh, uh, reasonable. But for me, the question is not whether, yeah, even if it was old wine in new bottles, then it isn't necessarily the case now. Uh, so you need to look at the rate of change and evolution of frauds. What is the potential for what people uh, can do? But as a discipline, yeah, people who were uh, interested in computers started to think, well, how transformational is this? You know, is it likely to be, lead to more threats or lead to more efficient control or both? I've been socially isolated for three or four months now. I'm not entirely sure the real world exists anymore. I'm, I'm going with the, the entirely cyber-only dimension. On, on the idea of different realities, I guess one of the difficulties with conducting crime entirely in cyberspace and in in the the 2000s you were able to find people rip them off uh, take their credit card details entirely online yeah but the the problem is converting that criminal enterprise into a legitimate benefit and and I'm I'm making my way around to the concept of money laundering my question is, did this technology that was now available in, in the 2000s, did that change the possibilities for money laundering? Did it have much of an impact? It changed the volume and the geographical distribution of crime. You know, one of the things I've been keen to emphasize intellectually is that remote crime always happened. Right, yeah. Yeah, it would be done through the post. It could be done in a maritime setting with bills of lading where you pretended stuff had been loaded and sent to the destination and you discounted your payment with banks who would pay a lesser amount on the basis. So if you falsified that 
bill of lading in some way, whether by conspiracy or by invention or by corruption, then uh, you could get away with, you know, so this was already happening in the 17th and 18th centuries. So it's a fundamental mistake to say that the computer invented globalization. Um, yeah, just look at you know, contemporary histories of Silk Road, and I'm not talking about the dark web uh, now, but the uh, of the original Silk Road as an example of globalization merchanting. Um, yeah, that's what colonialization was partly about. But the volume of what you could do if you didn't have to be physically present or, or physically transport goods um, in every situation uh, just boomed. So you could do a hell of a lot more. And, you know, so you started to get spam. You started to get, I suppose, early phishing. Yeah, a lot of those kinds of technologies just did not exist before. Yeah, so you could trick someone into believing that they had an order from somebody real in the 19th century, 18th century. But the idea of doing it on a mass scale, that was impossible without computers. Um, and in that sense, yeah, maybe conceptually, this was old wine in new bottles. But in practice, it meant that wherever you were in the world, you could attack. Uh, people, even in the days of the old Soviet Union, if you'd still been when you couldn't physically leave the country without permission, uh, you would have been able to do, if computers had been available in the old Soviet Union, then uh, you would have been able to do mass fraud from Romania, which was then part of that Soviet Union, yeah. rather than in the free country, part of the EU that is. Uh, today, uh, likewise Ukraine, Russia, etc. So um, the jurisdictional issues which you refer to then became more commonplace. And uh, to me, one of the transformations that has happened is that mutual legal assistance used to be viewed as an occasional thing that you needed to deal with big crimes. Yeah, which it was in the 19th century, even up to the 1980s and 1990s, and is now a routine problem in every cybercrime investigation. So the issue of similarity of legislation, compatibility of legislation, is important. And to come back to the question of money laundering, the fact that you were doing a lot more crimes from abroad and generating a lot more money from different sources, uh, combined with the fact that money laundering was criminalized. You know, money laundering wasn't a problem in the olden days because there was no law against it. Even when I did my first money laundering project in 1988, and that concerned the Brinks Map Girl bullion robbery, where they laundered uh, in today's values over 100 million pounds whatever currency you live in, uh, 100 million pounds in gold bullion, uh, there was no money laundering. So when the Bank of England in Bristol, branch in Bristol, ran out of 50 pound notes, nobody asked themselves, why are we suddenly running out of 50 pound notes? Yeah, it was nobody's job to look at that stuff in 1980, 
three, four, five, there was no legislation criminalizing money laundering. Uh, so it wasn't a problem. Uh, you might have been done for receiving stolen property or for conspiracy to defraud. But the um, but it was nobody's job to look at where your money had come from. And it wasn't a crime, though the Canadians came to this very late too. Um, the uh, It was nobody's uh, job to look at whether your money came from legitimate or illegitimate sources. I mean, you might not want that kind of person in your bank, um, but that was a, a, an issue of, of, of taste rather than fearing that your bank might be closed down or you might get sent to jail. So it did have an effect and it did cause more problems. And to some extent, firms like Western Union and MoneyGram were getting a lot of this money sent uh, in cash and were moving it. And they had to then for fear of being prosecuted themselves, to develop technologies for looking at the patterns of deposits and seeing whether it was plausible and uh, applying in in that kind of context the kinds of uh, a, a variant of the kind of logics that banks were being required to do. Oh, that's really interesting. In my mind, mo money laundering was a problem forever and, and it was illegal forever. It, it, it explains, it explains a, a lot more movies from the 1980s now. Money laundering was not criminalized even in the US till 14 years after I started my PhD. Um, so 1986 was the first actual money laundering legislation in the US, followed by Britain, followed by elsewhere. So we have to think, you know, these are these are ways of constructing um, the pattern of organized crime that people didn't have. So all of these finance havens and the French have a good phrase, uh, paradis fiscaux, um, uh, all these uh, yeah, tax crime havens, call them what you want, uh, were generally created long before any criminalization of money laundering to, um, you know, to help move money. There was exchange control in many countries, including my own, where you couldn't move more than a certain amount of money outside of the country. And they existed to enable business to go on, which kind of bypass those controls and also to avoid taxes and avoid uh, having to pay divorce settlements and, uh, and all kinds of stuff uh, uh, like that. So what I'm suggesting is that my own conception of this was that there were different worlds of crime and non-crime going on in the economic sphere. You know, so what you have to think about is, you know, Who's picking up the baton in this criminal relay uh, and who isn't? Who doesn't realize there is a baton? You know, they can't think of where the, the uh, of how to progress. So, you know, money laundering problems were, were, yeah, took some people out of the market because they couldn't work out a way of doing anything, just like. Yeah, I ask the occasional burglar, well, why don't you steal credit cards? Oh, we wouldn't be able to do anything with them. In a way, that whole end product, I mean, that's why people prefer cash, 
uh, that whole end product is an important part of the of reconceptualizing uh, the organization of crime and seeing whether it's a control or a stimulus to crime. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, in in the late two thousands in Korea, before um, smartphones. All of the phones that they sold were locked to a to a carrier, which meant that if you if you stole a phone, the carrier would turn the phone off and it would be a brick. It would just be a paperweight. So they didn't really have an issue with phone theft until uh, maybe maybe 2010, 2011, a long time after smartphones when when they started getting. Um, gangs in from overseas who were coming and stealing people's phones because Koreans had no idea that anybody would want to steal their phone. It's the same issue with secondhand, the the lack of a secondhand uh, market in Japan. Yeah. There's no point in stealing stuff in Japan because people don't buy secondhand stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I think that that's why it's important for uh, cyber crime scholars not to think too narrowly about the discipline you've got to think about it in its in its social context i mean to me routine activities is not really a theory it's a model it's just a way of kind of seeing stuff but the uh, it doesn't explain anything uh, on its own but it, but it, it it does illuminate uh, the way in which our everyday interactions can create possibilities or constraints sure yeah, like you need you need oxygen, heat, and a fuel source for a fire, but it doesn't explain arson. Correct. Yeah. Brilliant analogy. You've dropped a few pearls of wisdom, but I'd, I'd just like to ask if there's anything or a few things that you've picked up along the way that you, you would hope that everybody else would, would, would also keep in mind when they're doing research or, or looking at, at the problem of, of crime uh, online. Well, I think I've always tried not to be seduced by fashion. Uh, you can see this in my clothes, of course. Um, but, yeah. uh, Doctor Doctor Levy is wearing a very stylish ensemble, by the way. The, the, that's that's clearly a sarcastic joke. Yeah, well, I'm not the David Bowie of <laughs> but it's very tempting for people to get off on the next new thing, and of course that can be career enhancing to do that. Uh, I, yeah, just doesn't happen to affect me. So jumping on bandwagons is fine if you want to do that. Uh, but people like me are there to stop bandwagons or to try to stop bandwagons because sometimes you just get run over. Uh, but the uh, so stopping bandwagons can be a dangerous thing uh, to do and say, hang on a minute, um, how does this affect the generality of fraud? How does this affect the generality of terrorism? Uh, I mean, you know, even with cybercrime, we did some research, for example, with the City of London um, and the City of London Police in 2014-15, where we looked at all the the fraud reports that had come in, and we tried to classify them, first of all, cyber-enabled, cyber-dependent, cyber-assisted. Like cyber assisted and cyber enabled are becoming difficult to separate. And we thought, well, how many of these are totally online? Or how many of them require some kind of offline element? And you can think about that both in terms of the process, like do the offender and the victim ever meet physically 
And it also applies to where did they launder their money? Right. You know, because if you just think of the fraud as getting the money, that's only one. That's an important stage. You know, how do you find the people competent to commit crime? They could find them in jail, but are they competent? Yeah. Or do you find them in a bulletin board? And how do you know they're not undercover cops? Uh, so what are the problems of secrecy? Um, what problems do these give rise to? Uh, then you have the, well, how are you going to commit the fraud? How are you going to select your victims? Um, do you just sort of send them out with deliberate bad spelling so that only an idiot is going to reply? And that you some selection effort. But, you know, how? what kind of fraud are you going to commit? You know, how do you... You know, what skills, what resources and skills have you got? And then, you know, there's been a lot of terrific cybercrime uh, research, a lot of it in in Canada, in Montreal, especially in the UK, in Australia. Um, they have been the main places a little bit in the States growing um, there. But a lot of people's focus, you know, but if you regard it as a total system, you say, well, okay, so what do you do with the cybercrime once you've done it? You know, what are you going to do with the money? Maybe you might have ransomware for bitcoins, okay? And people use bitcoins, it's less secure, but everybody knows about it. There's no point in asking people to open up something, you know, uh, to, to send you money in something they've never heard of. That might be tricky unless they were sophisticated people um uh, but then how do you cash it out um you know where can you spend bitcoins or other currencies are available um you know so the more so until that becomes much more routinized much more popular you've got very limited things that you can do so you focus then on the cashing out process so you've got to see it as a in a systematic way as a process and think about the controls and whether they're preventative controls. Um, uh, Benoit Dupont has focused our attention on uh, resilience as a key uh, issue in fighting cybercrime rather than the pursue function. Um, but you know, what do we need cops for? Or will private security do? This is where you come to the um, to, to the importance of jurisdiction, where are you going to get cooperation from? If you're not going to get cooperation uh, from, say, Ukraine or Russia or China, um, then what's the point of having police do anything uh, at all? You know, you should maybe function on prevention. And I wrote, uh, um, I think it's quite an influential uh, report on the an evidence-based approach to the prevention of organized crime in 2004 uh, in Europe, um, which tried to get people rethinking uh, these kinds of issues. And I've, so I think you know, it depends. You, you can look at a little pro part of the problem and do something really good on that, and or you can put it in a much bigger perspective. Uh, I think one of the difficulties of research, apart from access, um, is, you know, who you're going to access and how are you going to do that? We, uh, when I was a graduate student, uh, I and my brilliant supervisor, uh, who died a long time ago, Richard Sparks, not the professor at Edinburgh, um, but 
uh, he was then at Cambridge. Uh, we used to we used to talk over a couple of pints uh, about uh, how we would do research on the dark figure of vanishing. Yeah, it's a very interesting question, but it's not something you can readily research. So, yeah, what is feasible to do? I think, yeah, looking at victim uh, uh, susceptibility, Cassandra Cross, uh, Mark Button, uh, Monica Whitty, with whom I've worked, have uh, done uh, interesting work on that. Uh, I have an unfinished manuscript from 1992 on victims of white collar crime, which I'm looking forward to finishing before I die. Um, the uh, I want to have on my gravestone, revise and resubmit. But the, um, yeah, there are there are lots of different frameworks. I quite interested at the moment on fear of cybercrime and fear of, of offline crime. Looking at the interaction between online and offline uh, is an important area because although COVID may have got more silver surface you know, into using the internet, it's still hard to target very old people as a cyber criminal. Uh, so there are different segments of the market that you've got to think about the business process. So. Uh, trying to understand the crime commission process in crime scripts remains uh, important. And I think it's just an endlessly fascinating thing, which is why I'm still going strong into my old age, uh, as is Peter Grabowski. Um, and looking at the evolution both of crime and its control in the private and public spheres and looking at that interaction. Is an endlessly fascinating problem. As I say, you can do it at a big scale, you can do it at a small scale, but it's a really interesting thing. So one of the tricks I use personally is just to think, well, to what subset of the crime issue does my analysis relate? It's not a bad thing if it's a small subset, but just to be a little bit more humble about, yeah, I've had my share of rewards so I'm quite comfortable about that so just to be a little bit more humble about uh, what proportion of the issue you have cast insight into uh, and we all need to work in larger networks because it's becoming I started out uh, as a more or less lone scholar nobody else or very few other people were interested in what I was doing um, may still be the case. And, you know, I didn't have any other collaborators really in the UK. Um, that's another way in which computers have transformed. And the telephone, of course, um, cheap telephone, uh, have uh, changed people's uh, lives. Um, so I think we now work in general in larger networks. And yeah, so do you share your wonderful discoveries and let other people get credit for it? Or do you keep it to yourself? Um, well, that's a, that can be a tricky problem too. How much do you trust your academic collaborators? Some you do, some you don't. You monitor that just as criminals do online websites. So it's yeah, thinking widely as well as narrowly um, and uh, just trying to convince other people that what you have to say is interesting. Dr. Levy, it has been a pleasure and thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I, I hope if people get a little bit of wisdom at the end of the day, uh, that's as much as we normally get. 
from listening to any tool. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. That was the final part of our mini-series of Cybercrime Histories. We owe a debt to Judge Stein Schulberg, Dr. Peter Grabowski, Dr. Dorothy Denning, and of course, Dr. Mike Levy, who brought the series home in style. If you missed an episode, don't worry, they're all still waiting there for you. And in their show notes, there are plenty of links and references if you're curious about the things mentioned in the show. Next episode, we will cleanse our cybercrime palette by discussing the future before we get back to the business of where we are and what we're doing. This has been Cybercrimeology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. It's produced by me, but it's made possible by the kind guests sharing their time and their research. If you do have a question or comment, you can reach me at at Cybercrimeology on Twitter, or by old-fashioned email at cybercrimeology at gmail.com.